Artistic Whispers Productions presents Antithesis Book One Predestination and Other Games of Chance A podcast novel written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer Author contact information at www.jdsawyer.net Featuring the vocal talents of Robin Hathaway Nathan Lowell Stephanie Sawyer Stephen H. Wilson Kitty Nakian With original music by Danny Shade This story contains harsh language, sexual situations, and graphic violence Listener discretion is advised And now Episode 6 Hello, this is Chris Lester from the Metamore City Podcast at www.metamorcity.com. Every two weeks, I bring you chapters of an adventure in a world where fantasy and high technology collide. You're listening to Antithesis, Book One, and this is the story so far. Marion Shelley, daughter of Senator Bill Shelley and wife of intelligence operative Percy Scott, loves her husband. During their vacation on Space Station Sidon, she's taking every opportunity she can to make love to him, in every available corner, their hotel room, their hotel balcony overlooking the green belt, against a tree in the orange orchard. She's drinking up every moment with him, because she knows that their different careers will soon take them away from one another for more months. It's a second honeymoon of sorts, and it will be over all too soon. After his narrow escape from the Hartmans on Sidon, Joss Kyle has found his way to space station Nineveh, a massive independent venture orbiting the sun between the Earth and Mars. Thanks to Cassie Orenthal, he got a job in a bar, and he is once again in charge of his own life, doing what he does best, stirring up trouble. Cassie Orenthal's offer of free transport, it seems, was not all it appeared to be. She's a member of a resistance group dedicated to the overthrow of Earth-based governments in the colonies, and it was her mission to capture Joss and use him as an information source. To her surprise, Joss gets the drop on her and renegotiates the deal. Sympathetic to the cause, he's agreed to provide information and analysis as needed to assist in the preparations for war against the United States. Impressed with his candor, she took him as a lover. Joss now spends his days running his bar, Phalanx, where he does his part to foment revolution, and his nights providing analysis of intelligence reports to Cassie, and those above her in the resistance. In the dark, lit blue and orange and green by the screen surrounding him, Joss sipped at a cup of coffee while he reviewed the security logs for the day. A number of interesting fish had been caught in his net. After Cassie dropped him on Nineveh, Joss had looked for the best-situated, most disreputable bar he could find, and then suckered the owner into a poker game. A good hustle was easier to pull off in poker than in pool, and Joss played the man for all he was worth, including his bar. The six months since gave him the time to remake it into the kind of place he wanted to run, while at the same time building the reputation that made it indispensable as an intelligence trap. Now, with no one above him in his business, and only Cassius his controller in the intelligence game, he was unfettered. Free to run the gamut of black market deals that kept enough money in the bank to shield him from prying eyes, and then some. As for Cassie, the controller herself could be controlled when need be. She was formidable, and a challenge, and, though he hesitated to admit it to himself, intoxicating. 
but she was also young and rash. Her position and wealth were things she'd won through guile and brinksmanship. She'd not had the time and seasoning to mature her into a wise operator. Her rashness made her vulnerable, and he couldn't trust her to shield him, no matter who she had in her pocket. So, every night after he closed the bar, he reviewed the recordings of surveillance cameras and bugs for any useful information, either to the cause or to himself, and made use of what he could. The Secret's business had gotten progressively more profitable as Phalanx's reputation as a bug-free establishment had grown. Rumors were useful. He closed out the last of his logs for the night. He set down his coffee and stretched at his station. Hidden behind the secret panel in his living room, in his flat at the far end of the station from Phalanx, he liked the way the desk wrapped around him. A cocoon, perfect for his needs. Now, time for the more difficult work. He brought up his browser and started compiling an index of possible listing sites, letting himself go on automatic while he worked. Back at Phalanx, it wasn't hard to keep up appearances. The English pub atmosphere and good liquor encouraged loose tongues. The plants he employed in the crowd kept the talk running towards politics and commerce and secrets and helped build sympathy for the revolution, in their own way. After so much careful preparation, all there was left for Joss to do was offer friendly service and blend into the scenery. In the real world, or rather, the political Disneyland he'd once considered the real world, all his deception and guile would have taken him only so far. But this place was different. Here, there was virtue in necessity. Necessity was about to get a big boost. He finished his indexing and refilled his coffee. Now the difficult bit. Making the listings, each one different, each one in Farsi. Unintelligible language, Farsi. It was a great testament to the bloody-mindedness of the Zoroastrian priesthood that they'd managed to take back the Gulf from the Muslims and impose it on the Iraqis, the Kuwaitis, the Kurds, the Arabs, and the other tribal peoples in the area, and turn their collective gaze to the stars. Unfortunately, they didn't like playing nice with their trading partners. The Free Skies Agreement, which the Persians dropped out of, would soon be ratified by Mars. All that was left was Luna. The Persians didn't have a cut of the action, and that was going to be a problem. Hell, the Persians had been a problem since the first wave of space colonization. They had built Sidon as a military station in violation of international law, claiming that they did not recognize the authority of the law prohibiting orbital weapons platforms. It only became the floating pleasure island that it was now, as the Persian economy fought hyperinflation to pay for its overbalance towards military spending from building its new space fleet as it attempted to own the sky. They always had cast their gaze towards Luna. Joss hammered the desk in frustration. His Farsi was... farcical. His attempt to post a listing offering a reward for Persian military access codes kept returning translations asking for a price on university security guards or offering a dowry in exchange for a nice dog. God, you'd think an Indo-European language would be more intelligible. He swallowed his pride with another mouthful of coffee and pulled up a proper set of translation algorithms. One of these days, he'd learn it properly. For now, he stuffed his academic conceit and his caffeine jitters down to his toes, which tapped incessantly. The Outer Space Treaty of 1967 called Luna, quote, the common property of all humanity, unquote. It was a convenient legal fiction that belied the massive private interests on the moon. Legally, anyone could stake a claim and do what they like, and nothing prevented the Persians from setting up a base. They were prohibited only from weaponizing it. Practically, things were more complicated. It was LOXCOR they wanted, the Lunar Oxygen Cooperative Operation. 
The lunar soil was rich in oxygen, easily cracked, virtually inexhaustible. Locke's Corps supplied breathable air to all stations and ships in the colonies and worked as a monopoly because it only accepted payment in coupons it issued itself. Whoever controlled Locke's Corps controlled the solar system, at least until someone could set up a competing operation. Bootstrapping such an operation, with its support equipment and infrastructure, was prohibitively expensive. Conquest was simpler. Up to this point, the U.S. had thought it in their interest to enforce the peace with their own fleet, but the current president was an isolationist, leery of exacerbating the long standoff with the Persian Empire. It wouldn't take much for Luna's support in the American government to evaporate. The balance was precarious. A small thing, like the establishment of a common economy among the off-world colonies as proposed by the Free Skies Treaty, could do it. The resistance needed an ace in the hole. One more to go. He posted his new bounty on every anarchist website he knew to be popular within the Persian Empire, and on a few general interest mercenary sites as well. At the moment, only Bill Shelley's cloud kept bills from the Senate floor that would withdraw U.S. protection from the lunar colonies. As dirty as the old fucker was, he had just enough idealism left in him to think that a friendly government on Luna was in the interest and tradition of the United States. If someone found a way to get to him, the colonies were sunk. There. The last posting was done. Someone would have what he was looking for, and hopefully they'd be willing to sell by the expiration date. Joss turned off his terminal. The multicolored glow faded into the darkness. Normally, he tried to keep his work confined to his office behind Phalanx, but his flat address was easier to dissociate himself from if someone tried to trace back through the levels of spoofing he used. And, he admitted privately, he had enjoyed the extra time with his guest earlier this evening, something that wouldn't have been possible had he stayed at the bar. Now work was done, and without waking Cassie. Every hook he could think to bait was dangling in the water. All there was left to do was wait. He padded his way quietly to bed, careful not to disturb the sleeping form rising and falling gently on the other side. Her warmth bled through to his side of the bed like a protective barrier she'd wrapped around herself. She didn't wake up and he relished the unexpected luck of finding a place that fit him so well, if it did indeed at all. He had his doubts that the fit would last long. On Nineveh, nothing was what it seemed. Are you coming, lover? Marion's voice filtered lightly out from the shower into the bedroom where Percy lay in a sweaty heap. How in God's name do you find the energy? He laughed and pressed his palms to his face, unselfconsciously stretching the muscles out to find his composure. <laughs> what do you expect when you leave me alone for months at a time? I barely managed to stay sane on my own. He sighed, finally catching his breath. <sighs> you certainly have been saving up. Come on, lazy bones. It's warm and wet in here. The words barely seemed to make it past the smile in her voice. The sound of her voice was the joy that kept him going, and the thing he spent his days protecting as he walked through the dark places of the world. He sat up at the edge of the bed and looked through the open door to watch her body, blurred and tantalizing through the frosted shower door. He smiled broadly and stood up, heading to join her. He put on his best Shakespearean voice and intoned deeply, once more, into the breach. And covered the four meters to the shower in two long strides. He tore open the shower door and reached for her. Mmm, I thought you couldn't do it again. She reached behind herself and grabbed oh. his erection, 
pinning it in between his body and the small of her back. Oh, well. He nibbled the nape of her neck and whispered against her skin. When duty calls. I see that. Her voice, thick and husky a moment ago, had faded to incoherent whispers. Their revelry was broken by the harsh peal of the comm terminal. One long, followed by three short tones. A non-standard ring. Percy growled and threw his head back. Yeah, not now! Marion jumped, startled by the violence of his outburst. Percy closed his eyes and silently counted to five, willing the call to go away, but the terminal kept ringing anyway. He sighed heavily, ducked his head down to Marion's ear, and nibbled it gently. Duty calls. She sighed and leaned back into him for a second. He opened the door and stepped out. Don't hurry, he said with a wink. I'll be back soon. Percy slid across the floor on wet feet, grabbing a towel and wrapping it around him as he rounded the corner of the bedroom at a flat run. In five strides, he stood in front of the living room comm unit, hoping that it would be far enough away that Marion wouldn't overhear anything. He hit the button marked Receive. Before the picture finished scanning onto the screen, he leaned up against the microphone and hissed, You better have a damn good reason for calling now, Bill. What the fuck do you want? There's hardly any way to talk to your father-in-law. Bill Shelley's normally grave and elegant face wore a smile. He was playing it light. Always a bad sign. I'm on leave. You know I wouldn't call if I had any other choice. I'm back on the clock in three weeks. You're back on the clock in three days. I'm sorry, Percy, there isn't any other way. Things with the Persians are escalating and I don't have another choice. The timetable's been moved up. Well, at least Bill had dropped the pretense of the smile, though Percy wasn't sure he liked the haunted look that took over any better. <sighs> Fine, I'll book transport tomorrow and be in Quito in three days. There'll be no need for that. I'm sending you a mission brief. Plug in your PPD. You'll be staying inside and for this one. He wouldn't have to give up his leave then. Good. Just a little wet work while Marion was asleep and wouldn't miss him. But Bill's face was too dour for Percy to trust that comfort. They'd known each other too long and worked together on too many jobs. This was going to be a bad one, or Bill would have told him right off. Percy! Percy, are you coming back? Marion, calling to him from the shower. Hang on, I'll be there in a moment. Percy kept his growing foreboding out of his voice. There was no need to disturb her. The file was done transferring, and Percy pulled it up on the secondary screen, giving it a cursory glance while Bill filled in the sundry details. A team with a requisite biomass will be on station in 36 hours. Once it thaws, you'll move ahead as specified. Percy didn't hear any more. He'd found the target in the brief. He read the scenario. He choked on his breath and turned his glare on Bill. I can read the dossier. It was all he could get out. He'd meant to resign, to tell Bill to shove his orders up his ass and light them on fire. But he met Bill's eyes and saw his own dread and grief reflected there. I'll report in when it's done. Percy closed his fist and punched the disconnect button so hard he broke a bone in his hand. His mind registered the pain, but the rage kept it down. He ordered the computer to clear the log, using a backdoor code to override that the CIA had smuggled into the subsystem before it had gone online. <coughs> he stood in his towel for a moment, staring at his own eyes reflected back in the black screen, before he went mad. He howled in rage and punched the comm screen again with his good hand. The safety glass shattered into static spiderwebs. He whipped his towel off and twisted it into a garrote and contemplated strangling himself with it. God damn it! He snapped the towel out, sweeping the champagne flutes and the empty bottle off the table to shatter against the wall across the room. 
He looked around for something to kill and found nothing. Then, as quickly as it came on, the rage went out of him, pushed away by crippling despair. He fell to the floor in a heap, naked, exposed. He was in the middle of the front room. His back was to the door. His body rebelled. He scooted convulsively across the floor until his back hit the wall. The cool surface felt solid, reassuring. He was facing the door. It swam in front of him. He didn't even realize that he was sobbing until he felt Marion's hand on the back of his head. Her hand brushed his hair through and traced down his neck. She wrapped her arms around him and started kissing his eyes. Then the searing pain came, the migraine that he always got when he cried, the reason he'd learned not to cry in the first place. Somehow, through the blinding noise of his tears, he heard her voice soothing him, asking him what was wrong, begging him to talk to her. He fought down the urge to vomit, choked back his tears, reined his breathing in. He called on all of his training, all of his years of control, and managed to win his way back to his voice. He opened his mouth and told her, the vilest lie he'd ever told anyone. Georg's dead. Skiing accident. Punctured a lung. Georg was his little brother who had died two years before, murdered by a hooker trying to steal his credit jack in Paris. It hadn't been important enough to tell Marion about at the time. He was... Percy channeled his grief out through his lies. So young. So bright. Shh. It's okay. It'll be okay. Her voice slid sickly around in his brain as his head pounded. God will look after him. Come here. Marion's voice was soft and gentle, tender, rich, loving, like Chinese water torture. She deftly moved him away from the wall and wrapped her body around him, pulling his head down to her naked breast like a mother giving suck. He sobbed anew into her chest, kissing her in between gasps. I'll hold you as long as you need me. She whispered in his ear, stroking his hair. I'm here. I love you. Let it out. I'm not going anywhere. They were the cruelest words he'd ever heard. The radio crackled to life, ripping Cassie's transfixed gaze away from the new construction project. The new dome rose, half-finished atop the cliff to the north of Grissom's spaceport, and the cranes and maglifts operating busily around it gave it the look of a beehive. Charter Transport Curie A, this is Lunar Control. You are clear to land on pad B43 in two minutes. Cassie shook her head to clear the trance and looked at the clearance notice. She blinked a couple of times. Then it registered. Roger that, Control. Kyrie out. She considered taking the old girl in on manual, but thought better of it. She hadn't had any passengers this trip, no one to keep her sharp. Despite her daily workouts and VR simulations, her reflexes weren't sharp enough to do a manual docking maneuver the way she'd want to do it. She punched up the autopilot button and sat back in her seat, resisting the urge to make a fresh pot of coffee. They'd kept her in the holding pattern longer than normal. The increases in commercial tourism meant that mere cargo and charter ships were increasingly diverted to the orbital docks or to the outskirts of Terminals A and B. The terminals were already far over-scheduled. 
The sprawling spaceport, fully 10 kilometers down its long axis, had remodeled terminals C, D, and E exclusively for passenger shuttles running to and from the orbital passenger terminal where the large liners docked for their trips to Sidon, Nineveh, and Phobos Station above Mars. Curier's chronometer read 1530. Cassie had a meeting scheduled for 1700 that she wasn't going to be able to make. Not on time, anyhow. The cargo manifest had to be transferred, customs clearance procedures set in motion, the ship locked down, and then the trek down through the levels would take another 20 minutes beyond the business here at the terminal. She hated being late. The latter-day schooner touched down and the gangway slid into position, locking its seal tightly around Curier's airlock. Cassie slid down the long ladder through the four passenger decks, down to the cargo bay, and made her way through the massive containers to the airlock. There was plenty of volume left in the bay, but the old girl was packed within 15 grams of her mass rating. Just enough room to spare for any stray comet dust that might have accreted along the way. Another few grams, and there wouldn't have been enough fuel to land safely. Normally, she carried food, medical supplies, passengers, and other bulky cargo. But last year, there had been a massive uranium strike in the asteroid belt, somewhere out near Ceres, enough that a smelting plant had been built on Phobos proper to refine the ore. The high-density cargo meant that customs would move quicker, and Curier was carrying a couple dozen tons from Nineveh to Luna. She plugged her cargo manifest PPD into the wall jack at the end of the gangway and swiped her passport through the scanner. Her visa cleared. She went in to alert the cargo crews and supervise the unloading. Cargo workers had a propensity to remove resaleable equipment from the docking bay, and the usual run of biometric and electrical countermeasures were never quite enough for a clever loader who had seen it all and then some. Still, as unloads go, it wasn't a bad one, and it was over quicker than she expected. Moving through the terminal, she had to close her eyes from time to time to maintain her balance in the cavernous space. Two weeks of high-acceleration isolation left her ill-equipped to cope with any space larger than a couple dozen meters across. Vertigo was an unwelcome but dependable handmaiden. She couldn't do that again. She was long past the time of life when she could afford to take trips without passengers. The cargo money was better, but without Joe along, it was slowly driving her insane. There had been a time, after he died, that she needed the solitude just to preserve her sanity. But something in the last six months had broken through her shell. She couldn't be alone that long anymore. Not anymore. The lift down to Reservoir was mercifully empty. Oh, the head shop in the loft above was busy with tourists who were toking out to the gills, happy to be in a colony where their favorite vice was legal. Indeed, it was vital to the survival of the colony. The levels whizzed by as the car zoomed down to the lowest levels of the city at speeds just less than freefall. Enough to keep her feet glued to the deck, but barely that. Then, slower, it squeaked gently to a stop and the doors slid aside, and she stepped out onto the gantry. The highly polished obsidian of the lower levels gleamed back at her, glaring white on deep black as she followed the tunnel down its gentle slope, chasing the intoxicating moisture in the air. She ran her ship at 10% humidity or less, far drier than was comfortable. It was harder on her body, but it was easier on the air scrubbers and a lot cheaper. Now was the time for indulgence. Emerging into the cave, she breathed in deeply through her nose, letting the cool, husky moisture saturate her lungs, remembering what it meant to feel alive again. Mm. In absolute terms, the humidity wasn't high, but it was as night and day to the parched air on Curier. 
in front of her, men, women, and children of all ages played noisily in the city's only lake. Here, half a kilometer below the spaceport, 200,000 kilometers from the nearest cloud, was a lake. And it was a lake that the cultural police of the United States could not control. She wasn't usually given to superlatives, but Cassie couldn't help wallowing in them as she found an unoccupied shelf on the rock near the water's edge. She'd been in space and on space stations for the past year, running the labyrinth of politics, loyalties, business, and her various other favorite sins. There was too much work to do preparing for the upcoming revolution for her to have a chance to visit home long enough to enjoy it. The cause of independence was her master. The irony of slaving away for liberty wasn't lost on her. Nor was the irony of someone in her position helping to establish law and order on a lawless and violent frontier. But here... This lake made every useless inch of Luna City worth the bother. Glorious. She had to come back more often. It reminded her of why she was living the life that had chosen her, instead of ending it long ago. Dipping her toes into the water, she shivered. It was 20 degrees on a warm day. Luna's core was long dormant. There hadn't been active volcanoes on the planetoid for more than a million years. So there was very little to warm the water as it dripped down here from the collectors and started its long journey through the rest of the filtration system. Despite the chill water, swimming was a favorite pastime in Luna City, probably because the humidity in the city air, though higher than the level she'd grudgingly become accustomed to, was still too low for long-term comfort. Air conditioning and purification had a way of sucking the moisture out of a place. So, when eyes dried and reddened and nostrils chafed, more sociable loonies eschewed room humidifiers and came here for a swim. This place was uniquely lunar. Tourists rarely came here, and when they did, they were easy to recognize. They were the only ones wearing anything. Her appointment was late. She should have expected it and not hurried. She smiled to herself, taking comfort again that her sister was as unchanging as the reservoir, even after a year away. Cassie slid her ship suit and undershirt off and folded them neatly in a pile at her feet. She took a moment to look towards the ceiling and marvel once again at the glowworms and the phosphorescent moss that lit the cavern now that it was dark on the surface and the light pipes were dim. Damn, it was good to be home. Cassie got her panties off and checked to make sure her tampon string was tucked in, and she checked the pockets of her ship suit to make sure she brought a spare. It was a firm reminder when her dreams pulled her backwards. She looked around one last time to make sure her sister hadn't arrived yet before stepping forward and diving in. The cold water made her skin gather and pucker, her goose flesh rising in a vain attempt to combat the cold. God, I've missed this. The upwelling eddies around her as she treaded in place felt like a thousand miniature fingers caressing her. Even if this was only a brief rest stop, it was good to feel water wrapped around her body again. In another day, she'd be back out in space, probably running arms instead of contraband. She watched a group of teenagers having chicken fights and smiled broadly. It was good for the soul, seeing more than a dozen people socializing somewhere that wasn't a bar or a brothel. She lay on her back and floated for a while, letting herself lose track of time as she mentally replayed the blue Danube in her head. She flipped backwards and swept under the water, arching her back like a mermaid until her head broke the surface where her feet had been. She tilted her neck back and swallowed a mouthful. In spite of the various bodies swimming about, it was still cleaner than most drinking water on Earth, and the rich mineral content gave it a strong yet oddly pleasing taste.
She redoubled her treading to ward off the cold and scanned the shoreline again. Still not here. It's not like her to be this late. She stayed for a few more minutes, treading water and soaking up the mineral bath, much better than swimming in the chlorinated crap they use on the stations. There she is. More than a half hour late, but walking straight to the rock outcrop Cassie's clothes were piled on. Cassie swam over to the shore and bounded out of the water. Her sister spotted her and dropped her beach bag to catch her. Cass! Jade embraced Cassie tightly and warmly, then quickly disengaged. Damn, you're cold. Cassie grabbed her sister and hugged her again. <laughs> it's great to see you again, sis. You're looking good. That man of yours treating you right? He's wonderful. Jade blushed deeply. Then her face fell to disappointment. I'm gonna miss him, though. He's talking about making a run to some of the outer colonies, so he might be gone for God knows how long. But then, you know that already. Jade glanced away uncomfortably for a moment. Yeah, I know. Come on, get out of those dry things and take a dip with me. Don't let me doubt you, sis. Not for a minute. Try and stop me. Jade stripped off her clothes and dove with Cassie into the dark reservoir. They frolicked in the water like children, <laughs> enjoying the simplicity of the moment. A moment stolen from a workday and given over to a childhood they'd not been allowed. It was important to Cassie to have these moments before they got down to business. Jade tagged her and dashed underwater out towards the middle of the lake, where the water went from pale green to deep black as the bottom of the lake opened down to the secondary filtration system. Cassie let her get a good head start, then gave chase. Jade had grown taller since puberty, but Cassie was older, tougher, and quicker. She caught up and tagged her back, forcing Jade to the surface in a fury of bubbles as the tag turned into a tickle that sent her gasping for air. In the confusion, Cassie retreated back to a safe distance, but Jade's retaliation came quickly. Back and forth they went for an hour, until their lips turned blue and the cold bit through the aerobic glow. Cassie reached out for a final tag and caught her sister up in her arms, holding her desperately close. They clung to each other for several long moments. For so many years, they were all either of them had in the world. Now life had pushed them apart, and their moments together were ever more precious. Cassie choked back a sob, trying to hold the moment as long as she could. She kissed Jade on the cheek and whispered, I love you, into her ear. She felt Jade's cheeks grow wide with a smile against her neck. I love you too, Cass. Jade squeezed Cassie tightly and then let go, arching into a backstroke towards the shore. Cassie watched her for a moment. She was no longer the little girl Cassie had found huddling naked and beaten after their mother's suicide. She had grown in every way. She wasn't the angry teenager who could eviscerate men twice her size without a second thought. Yes, she had grown, and it was good to see her again. Even so, the last year had changed her. Jade wasn't the fiercely independent young woman, the dependable sister Cassie could trust with her life, that she had left not so many months ago. Cassie didn't think it was she who changed. She wasn't even an element in the equation. Granted, the cause had demanded heart and soul from her, and there hadn't been anyone but herself to lean on when she'd left Jade here with her marching orders. Still, the slim possibility that Cassie had forgotten what interdependency was didn't explain the change. Jade couldn't have stayed on an even keel while Cassie had traveled a more lonely road since they parted ways after Joe died. It couldn't be Cassie who had changed. No, the difference was subtle, but it was there, and Cassie didn't trust it one bit. It wouldn't matter if Cassie could still be sure of where her sister's loyalties lay. Even though Jade said that Doug's loyalties had moved and he was sympathetic to the revolution now, 
Cassie couldn't believe it. It was that very protestation that had made Cassie suspicious in the first place. Mr. Douglas T. Reeves, a revolutionary sympathizer? Maybe not impossible, but highly unlikely. Two years ago, he'd been a plant, supposedly appointed as a judge, but working with the agency as a spy catcher. He was the only one who had managed to get anywhere near unraveling Cassie's organization. It was only assigning Jade to Reeves, and Jade's willingness to take him on and become Cassie's mole, that had kept Cassie out of federal lockup. Can she be trusted? Even now? Cassie pondered the question as she zipped her ship suit up and watched Jade wring her long hair out. Maybe, but she bears watching. Her stomach tightened at the thought, but she didn't see another choice. She walked up behind Jade and slipped her arms around her waist, then reached up and pecked her gently on the ear. I have to get going, sweetie. Take care of yourself. Don't ever change. Cassie tried to keep the sob out of her voice. Jade turned around and returned the embrace. Are you okay, Cass? Cassie blinked back tears and hoped fiercely that Jade thought they were joyful. Yeah, I'm fine. It's just... I've missed you. That much, at least, was true. I've got to get going now, little Buddha. When Cassie was 14, she'd taken a small jade sculpture of a Buddha from the body of a woman with unsavory appetites. She'd made a gift of it to Jade for her 10th birthday. Ever since then, she'd been little Buddha like the jade sculpture. I'll call when I have a chance. Jade kissed her back. You take care of yourself, too. I will. Cassie pulled free of Jade's arms and walked away, forcing herself not to look back. She hiked up the stony beach to catch the lift and then a transport to her long, unused apartment. It was entirely possible that Jade's affection for Doug had surpassed her loyalty to Cassie and the burgeoning Federation. Or maybe Reeves' conversion was legit. No, that wasn't a possibility she could trust. As the levels of the Grand Gallery whizzed by her, Cassie patched herself through the Curie's comm system. She deliberately avoided thinking about the personal consequences of what she was doing as she called in favors and gave orders to have her sister watched. She pretended to herself that she wasn't contemplating the what-ifs. What if Jade isn't a traitor? What if Reeves is legit? What if they find out they're being watched? You've been listening to Episode 6 of Antithesis, Book 1, Predestination and Other Games of Chance. Written and performed by J. Daniel Sawyer. Original music by Danny Shade, used with permission. Other music by Johann Strauss. This episode starred Robin Hathaway as Marion Shelley, Stephen H. Wilson as Percy Scott, Nathan Lowell as Senator Bill Shelley, Stephanie Sawyer as Cassie Orenthal, and Kitty McKeon as the Spaceport Announcer. Some sounds courtesy the Free Sound Project at www.freesound.org. Other sounds copyright 2008, Kitty Nakian and Artistic Whispers Productions. This audiobook was recorded, edited, and mixed at Artistic Whispers Productions in Castro Valley, California. The book is copyright 1997 and 2008, J. Daniel Sawyer. And the recording is copyright 2008, Artistic Whispers Productions. This recording is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.0 license, and all other rights are reserved to the author. And there's episode six. I know it's late again. There's a good story behind that. Hold your pants on. Or if you're about to go swimming, take them off and go lunar. This week we're joined by my friend Lorian Wheeler, who was kind enough to lend her voice to Jade and also by the inestimable Nathan Lowell, author of the excellent quarter-share, half-share, full-share, double-share novels, as well as a few other novels, available exclusively through Podiobooks.com. 
You can tell the man has voice acting chops by the way he pulls off that Massachusetts accent with Senator Shelley. He's even better when he gets going on his own books, and he's a better writer than he is a voice actor. Check his stuff out. You'll like it. We'll be hearing more from him as the series progresses. Starting last week, Robin Hathaway joined us playing Marion Shelley. She was a pinch hitter. The original voice I cast came down with health problems and couldn't make it into record, so I threw a Hail Mary pass to Robin, who I met a couple years back working on a play called Pomp and Circumstance. She was a real sport in coming in at the last minute, and she turned in a stunner of a performance for a role that requires a lot of range. We'll be hearing more of her in the coming weeks. Meantime, she's in L.A. building her film career, so any of you casting directors who are listening, head on over to www.robinhathaway.net to see her headshots in real. I can tell you from experience she's professional, easy to work with, intelligent, and brings a lot of heart to every role she plays. Any of you listening from Northern California, pencil October 4th, 7 p.m. into your calendar. That's the time that Seth Harwood of the Jack Palms novels, Chris Lester of the Metamore City podcast, who gave us the story so far this week, and myself will be joining forces for a pub crawl. We're meeting at the Jupiter in Berkeley. It's on Shattuck at University, and it's an excellent place to have a drink and stir things up a bit. There'll be freebies there, and you'll get to grill three of the Bay Area's podcast novelists all in one place. So remember, Saturday, October 4th, 7 p.m. at Jupiter's in Berkeley. So yeah, I'm late again, for the third week in a row. The first three weeks, bang on time. Then, well... It all started during the first week of Antithesis when I interviewed T. Morris and Philippa Ballantyne for their Double Trouble promo. We got talking about the new book, and, well, I'll let you listen to it. There's some relevant news in here. What is this? Oh, Pip, uh, Pip is... Pip read a character for my new uh, full cast patio book, so... Um, oh, rock on! I just, uh, just posted the first episode today. Congratulations! Oh, I'm getting a reputation, aren't I? Yeah. <laughs> getting? I'm getting? I was going to say. I'm playing to type T. That's all you need to know. <laughs> oh, she does a fabulous job. She'll show up in about episode 10, I think. Woo! So. How, how often are you going to be posting? Uh, every Thursday, if I can keep up with it. Yeah, that's how many, good. How many, how many episodes do you have in the can? Um, I've got uh, 12 completely recorded and three oh. completely posted. I fucking hate you. I'm done. I'm done. <laughs> you fucking hate me, huh? Well, T, you don't have to hate me anymore. Seems that I got to the middle of episode three and changed my mind about how I wanted to perform the narration, so I started re-recording and remixing as I was going. Now, I didn't think this was going to be a problem, because really, I don't take all that long to record. The long part of the mixing is the sound balancing between the different layers of soundscaping, and really, there's only a few things that can make it a problem. Things like construction noise, heat waves, laryngitis. I never get laryngitis. I live in the San Francisco area where the temperature almost never gets above 85 degrees, except for a few days here and there, and the only construction site in my neighborhood finished all its constructing months ago. Of course, I didn't bank on the fact that my luck might not be quite as good as Joss Kyle's. Just as I was halfway through re-recording episode 3, the construction hit. It seems that someone in my neighborhood decided that they were in dire need of a sudden and ill-planned re-landscaping venture. Who knew that it took more than three weeks to rip up juniper bushes and then rototill them endlessly while you decide what to plant in their place? Oh well, at least I didn't have to contend with heat sickness, right? Well, no. 
Turns out that the weather decided to take a sudden turn for the arid. Keep in mind that I live in the land of natural air conditioning. You get that cool breeze coming off the bay and there's no need ever even to own an air conditioner. Except this month. So I go out and buy one to keep myself cool and it turns out that the thing sounds like a fucking freight train is driving through my studio. So scratch recording time that way. And of course to top it all off, the dry air gives me laryngitis. So yeah, it's been an interesting challenge to keep these episodes coming out, particularly with the three new projects I got going for clients, but fear not! Next week, the forecast is cooler, so I should be able to get a couple episodes ahead again so that you guys won't have to cope with any more delays. Oh, by the way, you heard right. Philippa Ballantyne, author of Chasing the Bard and Digital Magic, is playing a deliciously sensual character later on in the book. You'll want to stay tuned to hear her lovely voice trickling into your ears. And of course, between now and then, there's some heavy shit. Action scenes, cult orgies, ambushes, intrigue, and the usual raft of disreputability to keep you going. You can hear the rest of my conversation with T and Pip in Season 3, Episode 1 of the Polyschismatic Reprobates Hour at www.reprobateshour.com. I'm running way long again this week, so I'm going to save the current stack of feedback for next week, but please keep it coming, and review us everywhere you can. Dig, stumble upon, boing boing, you know, anywhere you can drop some links would be a fabulous help. And remember, you can email me at dan at jdsawyer.net, and you can leave feedback on the blog or on the antithesis line at 206-350-2340. Questions, attaboys, criticisms, and death threats are all welcome, but be creative. This whole, I'm gonna come into your office with a shotgun line is getting kinda old. And with that, I leave you to the nagging questions. Will Jade find out she's being watched? Where do her loyalties really lie? With her sister Cassie and the quest for lunar independence? Or with Doug and his allegiance to the United States? And what about Percy? What was in that assignment that made a seasoned recon man and assassin fall to pieces in his own living room? Find out next Thursday. And until then, remember, it isn't whether you win or lose. It's how you rig the game.